0: Let's dive into the last few verses of Genesis 1. We'll be in Genesis 2. We'll also be next week in Genesis 2. So um, I'm, I'm moving it at, at a... Huh? Genesis 2 also. Yeah, there, there you go. Um, uh, I know I'm moving at a glacial pace, but uh, this, this is good stuff. It's a lot of stuff we've got to deal with. And, uh, and I think uh, pretty good for us now. Eric Erickson, if you've ever studied uh, educational psych, Eric Erickson in the middle of the 20th century, um, he coins the term identity crisis to describe a developmental issue that occurs during adolescence. Now, I think that's interesting that I... Wasn't aware until I read it this week that, that Erickson came up with this idea of an identity crisis. So many of us either are in one or have had one in the, in the past. But it was really, um, he, he talked about it or, or postulated this as it has to do with, um, with kids, with, with adolescents and uh, one of their developmental tasks. So the idea here is that the common plight of people wrestling with this question, uh, with this issue, are saying... Whether they articulate it or not, they're going to ask, "Who am I and why am I here?" Who am I? Why am I here? It's interesting. When I was in seminary, I will never forget Dr. Philip Briggs in a in a class I was taking on discipleship and uh, and especially as it was geared toward adolescence because I was a youth pastor in those days. Um, he was talking about the developmental task of of adolescence, and, and, uh, and I, I work with lots of them, because really adolescence is getting later and later. I mean, it, it's being deferred, and so college students certainly fit into that. And it was interesting because he would agree uh, Dr. Briggs would agree with what have agreed with, uh, with Erickson, obviously, but he said, you know it's not so much. the developmental task of young people is to figure out who I am as to figure out whose I am. That was profound. I will never forget that. Because the truth is, once I figured out whose I am, the who I am kind of follows along. Augustine, in his Confessions, writes this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Isn't it interesting to think about Um, what we've already studied in this Genesis passage, and certainly just the first chapter, what is yet to come um, to think about what God has done and uh, to kind of to deal with his creative order. Now, in the first 25 verses, that's all we've studied so far. Ellie's going to say, yeah, I know. Uh, No, we've only gotten 25 verses in. Um, um, They narrate kind of concisely God's forming of the cosmos And we talked about kind of the difference in the view again last week. Either I'm going to believe that this was all done on purpose or I'm going to believe that it was all pretty random. Okay. Um, So we talked about how God created uh, light in day one, uh, the sky in day two, the seas and the dry land in day three, the sun, the moon, the stars, living creatures, and then we ended last week with the first part of day six that was kind of with an economy of words uh, uh, describing how God made land animals. The focus has been throughout this study has been on planet earth either directly or indirectly um, because this is the way the Bible presents this, Um, but it's interesting that beginning with uh, the first through the fourth days, the Genesis accounts gets longer with each day. Its description gets a little longer with each day. If you kind of look at it, it, takes, it the Bible takes more words to describe day four, for instance, and day three. That pattern reverses in day five with kind of an economy of words, and then uh, the narration lengthens. Um, dramatically on the sixth day uh, the description of the creation of animals is going to be just done with uh, land animals It's going to be done with just a few words but then uh, uh, the narration increases really um, it's interesting uh, one author says he, he feels like Moses is in a hurry to get to what happens in the second part of day six and then he stops and takes more time with it. So that's where we are today. I begin to think about um, where we are in this description today, and I recognize that uh, God has day after day after day after day created, backed up, and said, "This is good." At the end of day six, He's going to pronounce a different pronouncement. Um, but I, I, I find what you need to think about it. Here's what here's what we will. We'll, we'll, leave, we'll begin with this, is the idea that humankind, you, are the pinnacle of his creation as described in the Bible. And we're going to talk about some of the components of that biblically today, so let's get into the text a little bit here. Um, um, it's interesting. At the end of five and a half days of creation, it would seem that the systems all set up to gr- to go, and to grow, and yet, at the end of five and a half days, the Lord looks, and it's just not complete without you, so, Steve Blair, can I get you to go to chapter one, and I'll have you start at 26, and read down through 31, Notice the different pronouncement there? Go ahead, Steve. Sorry. Okay. Sorry to cut you short. All right. Now, now beginning here, uh, it's interesting. There is, uh, the word that goes in your blank here, first of all, is personal. It seems like to me that uh, the way the creation story progresses has been a little bit inanimate, a little bit... Um, um, God said it and therefore it happened. Uh if you I, I put several verse references there just from earlier, then God said and there was. Okay? God said let there be, a lot of let there be's in the first 25 verses of of the Bible, okay? But by the time we get to chapter to verse 20, 26, it has gone from being let there be to let us make in our image. You catch that? It gets really much more personal. You need to catch this because I think it's kind of important here. You need to it, let us create in our image. Now, now uh, there are a lot of people who will think that this is a reference to um, to the Trinity of God. Some some. Um, because it's it's used in plural form here, um, some will say, "Nah, probably not," because the, the concept of the Trinity wasn't completely developed by Moses' day. Uh, we see a lot of that uh, implied in New Testament, and only kind of kind of implied a little bit in the Old Testament. But but um, uh, it's true. It just may not be here. It could be that God is speaking to um, angelic beings and through whom he partially made the earth. It could be that he's speaking to the Son, if you, if you believe, uh, not to the S-U-N, but the S-O-N, if you believe uh, in the account of the second Genesis, which the second Genesis account, which is in John 1, you, you read there that, that Jesus, our Savior, actually was the agent of creation. So could, could God have been talking to the Son, and to the Spirit? Could have been could have been, but that would have been a unique concept for 1500 or so BC. Uh, It could be, it could be that the let us is what? Let's see, I wrote this in my notes. um, Could have been referred to as, uh, what you and I might refer to as a plural of majesty. Now, let me give you a story that goes with that. Um, um, Queen Victoria was told a joke, supposed to be really, really funny, and um, she didn't quite think it was as funny as the joke teller thought, and she said, and you've used it, we are not amused. Remember? It, do you know that's where that came from? Queen Victoria was told a joke, and she said, this plural of majesty, uh, we are not amused. By the way, don't try that with your spouse. That doesn't work. (laughs) We are not amused. You know, that doesn't doesn't really work. So it could be this plural of majesty. Anyway, the point I don't want us to miss here in particular, though, is that the language is very personal. Let us make man in our image. Now, the important word there is image. Uh, great treatises have been written about this issue of how you and I were created in the image of God. Simply, um, and we'll, we'll keep pursuing it as we go through today, simply the idea is the idea of personhood, spirit, personality that you were created with, unique in all of creation. So. Um, let Let's move beyond verse twenty six but we 're going to kind of deal with some of those things now uh, i want I want to deal a little bit in verse twenty seven with this this phrase that i that I read this week that I just want to drill down in just a minute the idea that humans are a morally endowed creation of a morally good god now we'll we'll deal with that in just a minute, but if you notice how the description of the making of humans is is um, is presented in verse 27. Now, next week, we're going to look at the creation of family in chapter 2. So you're not going to look at specific details of how man was made and how woman was made until next week. But the Bible, just in rapid fire here, verse 27, says male and female he created them. So created him in his image in verse 27, and, and man is created, male and female. It includes that Uh, That clear distinction, God intended it that way, male and female. Um, And it's interesting that the word in 27 that's used, uh, that's translated created, okay, man created, um, God created man uh, in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. See, there it is again, male and female, he created them. So uh, interestingly here, from 1, 1 to um uh, from one one to five one okay there this word created is used eight times same word it's used um here three of those eight times, and in five one uh, again used um, uh the, kind of the idea here is um uh, that um Four times out of the eight times the word created is used in the first five chapters of the Bible. The first first eight times it's used, it is used to describe you. What's the implication of that? God created you. Think about that for just a minute. Because there are lots of people, maybe people that you work with, maybe uh, extended members of your family, who don't believe that statement. I was... uh, had breakfast every Thursday for a couple of years, by, by guy, with a guy by the name of Pat, he uh, his wife came to me one day and said, "You know, either you get this guy saved, or I'm walking away." I mean, he it was he, that's meant to be funny, but um, we're not amused. okay. Um, uh, he was just kind of a mess, and uh, so we met, and we, we were dealing with. Um, you know, God's claim on his life, and he, you know, he, he liked the church, like me, loved, loved his family, but just wasn't interested in Christianity, and a lot of it had to do with he was a scientist of sorts, and he had all these kind of issues with uh, the creation story and and uh, all this stuff, and uh, the, the, an avowed, committed evolutionist, evolutionist and all that, and I gave him a, I gave him an assignment one day, this was after we'd been together for 18 months, 18, 19 months. Um, I said, okay, buddy, um, here. I, I knew he had a little granddaughter that he was just nuts about. I said, do me a favor. Next time you see her, next time she's on your knee, I want you to look at her hands and feet. She was about 13, 14 months old, maybe younger than that. I want you to look at her hands and feet. And just, you're a scientist, study her hands and her feet. Okay. So it comes back the next week and I said, did you do your assignment? Yeah, I did. Your position implies that that is random protoplasm thrown together at some point. Are you aware of that? Well, yeah. No, your position is that that's all accidental. Accidental. when it gets personal, it's harder to get my brain around, you know? In fact, doesn't it require more faith to accept that position when I look at the tiny little fingernails of a little bitty one? And the way fingerprints and those kinds of things show up really, really early, isn't it harder in some ways? Doesn't it require more faith to accept that that was just all random. Well, uh, eventually my good friend uh, accepted Christ. And, um, uh, it was interesting though, it wasn't until after he dealt with this little grandbaby and what he felt about the grandbaby. Now, now so the idea here is that you are God's creation created uh, a morally endowed creation of a morally good God. It's kind of this statement that I read this week. The reason I put that there is that without this truth, without that truth, there's nothing in our society to ensure the value of every person. Without that truth, then there's nothing to really ensure the value of every person. So that has implications for... The abortion debate, it has implications for the euthanasia debate, that has implications for racism, okay, and all kinds of things. If I if I sidestep that statement, the truth of that statement, and the truth of, of um Genesis 1:26 and following, that God made you it opens a Pandora's box of all kinds of other things. Okay? So, if we can begin from there, we will. All right? Now look at verse 28. God has endowed man. He speaks it here, and he's going to give us more detail later, but he endows man with a certain amount of dominion. That's the word that goes there. What is dominion? I, I barely heard you, Katie. Charge over. Charge over. Okay, so what are we given dominion over in this part of the chapter? Everybody. Animals, plant life. Sure. Uh, uh, if you've ever gone fishing with, with Roger, you'll know there's some dominion there over fish. Okay? All right. Dominion over. Charge of. Rule over. There's a, there's a stewardship implied in that as well. Um, so the idea here is, um, that, uh, we have been given this, we were, we were given originally this dominion, but that dominion, and we'll see this by the time we get to chapter three, that dominion is now limited by our own sin, by the sin of mankind, that dominion as well as the image of God. I was, uh, listening to some tapes of A.W. Tozer this week. His concept, and it's a wonderful concept, is the thought that like a mirror that you would buy, if you drop it and it becomes cracked, the image now reflected in the mirror is distorted. That's what's happened as a result of Genesis 3 and the fall of mankind. You were created completely in God's image, but... As a result of the fall of mankind, that image has now been blurred, cracked, distorted. Now, can I tell you the good news? Keep, I mean, it's easy to find Genesis 1, right? Go to Colossians 1 with me, would you? Go to Colossians 1. There are a couple of verses in Colossians that give us the good news about losing the image of God. Okay, Um, wouldn't it be sad if we only have Genesis 3.15 and we realize we have lost that image. We've lost, uh, if if God looks at me to look at his image, he's going to see a distorted picture. But the good news of the Bible is this. Okay, somebody at at Colossians 1, read verse um, 15. Somebody read verse 15. Now, it's talking about Jesus is the image, the perfect image of God. No distortion. Okay, Cindy, can I get you to jump one page over to three? It's Colossians 3, and read verse 9 and 10. Okay, Do you catch this? You, the image of God has been marred by sin. But Jesus, in whom is the perfect image of God, is reworking you to restore that image day by day. What a wonderful thing. What wonderful good news. Okay, I was created in the image of God. My sin goofed that up. But Jesus is restoring that image within me. Uh, that couldn't be any better Good news, to tell you the truth. Now, look at verse 29 and 30. So God endows man with dominion. This is now limited because of sin, but Christ is helping to renew that image. Now, in verse 29 and 30, uh, the writer here chooses very carefully a word, and he uses it several times here. Look at, I'm gonna read 29 and 30 out loud. Then God said, behold, I've given you every plant, yielding seed that's on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. How many times the word every show up in there? I didn't count them. Quite a few times, right? So the idea here is that by repeating that word, every, that's translated from the Hebrew, every, in our Bibles, it's an indication that God is a generous provider. Now, uh, I put the reference 9-3, I think. Yeah, by 9-3, after the flood, uh, we're also allowed, here it's talking about plant life for food. By 9-3, it's also talking about uh, another source of protein, animal life, and... um, um, But the idea here of every provision is the idea that God is pretty generous to you and me uh, in giving us um, the food that He has placed for us. Now I got to ask a question: Do you ever thank God for food? Well, I hope three times a day. You know, really. But but the idea was back in the day. Uh, but the more I read history, the more I realize that the struggle of mankind for most of our history, and, and in some parts of the world still is, is a struggle to find food. Uh, it is still a present a, a, a present challenge, and yet not necessarily with us in this room. Okay, Later on today, we'll go to the grocery store and we'll pick out what we want. Right? Um, uh, I have a dear friend who, when we're together eating at a restaurant, never fails to say, Lord, thank you for the privilege of eating out. Talking to John and Brenda about McDonald's back in the day. I remember in the day we thanked the Lord for McDonald's because that's all we could do with two little kids and relatively no income. But I got to admit to you, that these days, and you can look at how rotund I am and know, these days I don't worry as much about what, whether or not I'm going to eat. It's more what I'm going to eat, right? That's not, tr- that's not a true thing for lots of the world today, including Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, by the way. There are kids that go home, and don't get much to eat over the weekend. School is so important to them because they get to eat a couple of times a day. And there are teachers who are, who are graciously and wonderfully and mercifully helping take care of that. Uh, what we do at Seaworth kind of helps to mitigate some of that. But it's just true. I need to be thankful. And by the way, isn't it interesting that Jesus in his model prayer said, Give us this day our daily bread. It's the, the idea that we ought to be dependent more on God for what we eat. And we ought to acknowledge that dependence and our gratitude for it. Maybe if you get nothing else out of this, maybe realizing just the thought that God has provided lovingly for you. Now, what I realize is there is a difference. I'm just going to tell you. There is a difference about that thing between me and even my parents one generation back. Because they, lived, they both lived through the Depression, and their parents certainly were, were having kids in the Depression, and they remember not having much, if anything. My kids didn't have that experience. I didn't have it. So I'm going to have to be intentional about thanking God for his provision of things as banal and as kind of normal as food. Okay. Okay gotten preachy. I need to move on. don't I? Look at, look at the last couple of verses here. Look at the last last verse of this. This is beautiful. And I, I got so excited about it when, when Steve was reading it, I cut him off. God saw all that he had made and behold, here's a different expression. It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So the idea here is is that the word very is added to this formula? I'll put the other references. He he looked back at the end of every day and said, well, This is good. Uh, this is good. This is good. But not until you were created did he say, Oh, this is very good. And now the whole system is together. But not until after he not until after you were made. Uh, what you need to see here. I have a couple of friends. I met with one of them this week, um, uh, with the husband this week. They are in the middle of adopting. Uh, They've been trying for 18 months or so to adopt. And um, they were told maybe 30 days ago, 45 days ago, that they have been given an adopted little girl. They'll, They'll be able to adopt this baby. But the baby won't be born until like October 18th. And they just go pick her up, and she'll be theirs forever. Uh, that, just that, that story is just amazing to me. But what it makes me think here is, have you ever been around expectant parents? How excited all that is. Um, let's be honest. Have you ever been around expectant grandparents? Maybe it's even more so. What I began to see this week as I studied this is that you need to see God at the end of Genesis 1 as, as an expectant father and the baby is now here. You are a big deal to him. He wants you to know that. Now, with that as a backdrop, how do you think God feels about you. Carol and I talked. For Carol, where'd you go? Look There you are. Talked about your new little granddaughter and what a big deal she is. And, and uh, you told me something about her personality already developing. How old is she? Yeah, okay. I knew it was just a few months. And yet she's already funny. And... Uh, and how Carol rejoices over that. And how uh, your, your granddaughter, our friend, rejoices over that. And her, and her husband. That's how God feels about you. <laughs> I, I'm going to tell you. I don't know. Sometimes I wonder. When God watches how I go through this life. I, I, just, I can just occasionally see him saying what my dad used to say or my mother used to say. They'd watch some shenanigans I got into, and they'd shake their heads and go, <laughs> look at him, look at him. Crazy as I am, they loved me. Goofy as I have become, the Lord loves me, and he loves you. He made you. you, you got to get your mind around that thought. Now, go with me to chapter 2 because what we've been looking at is a 30,000-foot view. Now, we're going to look a little tighter on the creation of man, and we'll look at a little more of it next week. But if, would somebody just pick up? John, would you mind to go to verse 4 and read four, five, six, and 7 out of 2? Okay, now if you look at 5 1 and you look here at, at 2 4, there is a kind of a, uh, a section heading that begins with something like, This is the account. Okay, so this is. This is a separate telling of the same thing, but it's the idea here in 2 verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and then it goes on to talk about the creation of man. The Bible is giving a more detailed account of what's already been talked about at a 30,000-foot view in chapter 1, Um uh, so, there, kind of, we get this idea of a section header. But, but all, um, more importantly, in verse 4, there's something that occurs here for the first time in the Bible in chapter 2. And it, we'll see it several times formulaically in, in the rest of the Bible. Uh, but it is this phrase describing God and the Lord God. That wasn't in chapter 1. The Lord God. This is um, kind of a compound description of him. Um, this is, um, Yahweh Elohim. Okay. So it it is not just, they've been using Elohim for a chapter and now is this idea of God as Lord Yahweh. Um, we see that, that surfaces here in four. And if you'll notice as we're reading through it, um, as you heard John reading through it, there's that phrase or that kind of formula, the Lord God, uh, occurs several times there. Now, in verse 5, this verse pre- previews the cultivation that's to come later. It's talking about plant life and how we'll cultivate that. I put the reference in 318 because it, it talks about there uh, the idea of having to work to, uh, to cultivate plant life, which happens after the fall. Um, that's kind of that context there, and then, um, and then verse six is where man begins to show up, and I want I want us to look at it uh, just one more minute. But a mist used to rise from the earth, and the water and water the whole surface of the ground. Uh, you kind of saw that. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So the idea here, the word that the Bible chooses to describe. Man. That becomes the proper name Adam. Sounds like, closely resembles the same word the Bible uses for ground. Okay, so if if somebody comes to you, I've been in here this morning and says, "Hello, Mr. Dirt, how are you?" That that would be it's got a, it's got a biblical precedent. Okay, Mr. Mudd, how are you? All right. Uh, so that word man, the word for man here, Adam, um, uh, kind of resembles the word uh, for ground. Now, the point that we need to catch from that is that man has a really humble origin. <laughs> we come from dirt, okay? We come from dirt. You know, sometimes we'll talk about somebody who comes from humble origin we will say they got dirt under their nails, that's a, that's a good descriptor. This is, it just came from dirt, period. I mean, that's kind of the idea. What a humble beginning, and it's important that I catch that. But it's also important that I catch what's said here in verse 7, that God formed you out of dust from the ground and breathed into mankind, his nost- into his nostrils, the breath of life, and man became a living being. There is no part here 's what goes in your blank. No part of our human existence is uncreated. Uh, I'll put the references there i won 't get time to to cover them at this point ezekiel thirty seven five that 's the uh, valley of the dry bones that 's that picture you remember the bones uh, that kind of everything 's put together finally the uh, there 's muscle and sinew that goes on there there 's skin that goes on, there, but they 're still dead until breath. Ruach, which is the word here, is breathe. The word breath, the word um, spirit, the word wind, all of those are the same word. Ruach in the Old Testament. It's the word in the New Testament, pneuma, starting with a P, that pneumonia. And uh, uh, Larry, did you ever own a car that had Non-pneumatic tires. I don't think either you or I are old enough to know about non-pneumatic. They're all pneumatic. they got wind in them. they got breath in them. So the idea here is that God created you and that he breathed life into you. There's no part of our human existence that's uncreated. And we're lifeless without that breath, without that spirit, without that wind. I watch a lot of football these days. Love it. And occasionally, I saw a college kid yesterday uh, pick up on what Cam Newton does. You know, when he scores, he does the Superman thing, you know. Someone made you to be able to do that game. He didn't make me that way. But he made those guys that way. Now, listen to this statement. This, is, this was written at the closing decades of the 4th century, so in the 300s, by uh, Gregory of Nisa, in a treatise that he entitled On the Creation of Man. Listen to what he says. This is beautiful. In this world, I've discovered the two affirmations that man is nothing and man is great. If you consider nature alone, he is nothing and has no value. But if you regard the honor with which he has been created, man is something great so the the key here as I, as I view and we'll look at the creation of the first family next week in the in the remaining chapters of, of the verses of chapter two. But what I want you to catch here is that you were personally created by God. You are, and if anything, the first two chapters of Genesis tells me, you are an object of his great love and concern. Now, I want you to think for a minute about what you're going through these days. All of us are going through something. Most of us are going through multiple somethings. Does God care about that? If he cared enough to craft you, to make you the way you are, then he cares about that. Out of love and concern, he made you. We'll deal with how that spills over into companionship and family and those things next week, okay? Thanks for hanging with me. I'll see you next week.